want to thank Jeff for inviting me to come and be a part of your worship time today as we look at the Word of God. And, uh, Jeff and Lisa and Margaret and I have been fr friends for more than two decades now, and uh, we thank God for that. It's amazing how God brings people into your life throughout your life's course and how important these relationships are, how much they mold you in, according to, uh, in accordance with the truth of God and how the Spirit of God ministers through these things. And it's a, a great thing that you have a, a fellowship in which you can form those kinds of friendships that will be edifying, that will build into your lives uh, those uh, proofs of faith that will endure unto eternity. Uh, the Apostle Peter, in the reading that we had, uh, rejoiced that those elements of trial uh, came to be the proving or the testing and finding genuine of your faith which would redound to praise and glory and honor at the appearing of Christ and is these kinds of relationships that build those things that last into eternity and so we pray that today we will have a part of that uh, put into our minds and our hearts as we look again in the book of Hebrews now I know that you've been doing that and you have, have you finished you've all the way through not quite not quite yet. So uh, <clears throat> I'm going to go back to chapter 1 just to look at some of the things with which the writer introduces this book because chapter 1 is really quite amazing. It's one of the, the best summaries of uh, the entire argument that a, a writer has ever put into a book. This is a, a, a true instance of a person who tells you what he's going to tell you uh, and then he tells you. Uh, and then at the end, he tells you what he told you. Uh, and so here we have the part where the writer tells us what he's going to tell us. And it is focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. As you've learned, as you've gone through Hebrews, you've seen how it is focused on Christ and his priesthood and Christ and his prophetic ministry, Christ as king. All of these things focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is the true Son of God. He is the one who is the fulfillment of all the covenant relationships. Every covenant that has been given throughout the, the, the history of, of the world uh, is set forth in reality as this, the eternal covenant, as you'll be looking at in Hebrews 13. The, the blood of the eternal covenant uh, is that by which Christ was raised from the dead and that by which we are saved. And so, here in Hebrews, I want you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Uh, 5 is actually the introduction to another little section, but it is an explanation already of what he has dealt with in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. So let us uh, listen to the reading of the Word of God. Long ago at many times... And in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, with an S. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, or a son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, 
having become, is much superior to angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a, to me a son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that your spirit would open our minds and our hearts to receive it. We pray that we would see something of the glory of Christ, that we might be transformed into his image, that he would be honored in what we do today, that our lives would be useful to him in this world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the leading themes of the book of Hebrews, of course, is the work of redemption, the completion of the work of redemption. We need to be redeemed. We are sinful people. We have broken God's law. We are unrighteous. We stand under his wrath. But God, in mercy, has made a way for us to be bought out of that slave market of sin, to be bought out of the condition uh, in which we stand in condemnation. Uh, and this redemption is in Christ. And so the theme of the book, I think, is perfect redemption. That's the title of this sermon, O Perfect Redemption. It's a perfect redemption because it comes in accord with the only person who could bring about redemption, who did the only things that could constitute redemption. So in these first four verses, uh, the writer is telling us why it is that he's going to argue throughout the book that we have a redemption that is fully formed, that is fully executed, we have a revelation that is complete because we have a perfect person in which these things have been done. So the, the writer begins by reminding us that revelation has come in a progressive way. Revelation has come in bits and pieces through different, different persons at different times. He says, long ago, or that is, it could be, we could translate it, in the old days. It's just the word for for old things, long ago, in those old times, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. This is one thing that we learn in the book of Hebrews, that these are now new days. We have entered into the last days, as he immediately says. We see that he is anticipating this to happen. If you look at the 8th the chapter, the 13th verse, the writer says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, most people think this book was written around 68, around two years before the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple and the ending of the whole uh, sacrificial system. This is something that Jesus himself had predicted and so the writer of Hebrews is anticipating that and so he's saying that there was a former time when all of these things were valid they were a part of God's revelation but they were only partial uh, but now we are in what is called the last days we're in a time when these things are complete but in the old times God spoke to our fathers at many times and in various ways through the prophets now it's an interesting thing that he spoke at many times. Margaret has been doing a study of, 
of the book of Genesis. And one of the things that is interesting is God will speak and God will make a covenant. And then there are several years where God doesn't, he doesn't speak. And then he'll renew the covenant and there'll be a long time and God doesn't speak. And yet all of this was maintained in the life of, of Abraham and then of, of Isaac and of Jacob. Uh, before there was a written revelation, it came by word of mouth, but how was it sustained in their hearts? I know there's debate as to whether or not the filling or the, or the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit uh, was actually present in the Old Covenant. I believe the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was present. Uh, I think there was a fullness of indwelling that comes after the uh, ascension, and there is a completion of revelation by which there is more spiritual truth that can sanctify us in a deeper and more thorough way. But I wonder, how did Abraham, as a sinful person who heard God speak, how did he maintain faith in that? How did he maintain the reality of that covenant relationship? How did he maintain himself as a stranger in this, in this world that had something that God was going to do with him and with his seed? Well, it was by the, the Spirit. God spoke at times. But in these last days, he has spoken. Now, when he spoke at times, it says that he spoke at times in many ways. We know that God spoke with an audible voice. He spoke to Adam, perhaps, in that way. He spoke to Noah in that way. He spoke to Abraham in that way. He also spoke through uh, prophets. He spoke through providential events that came. We know that he spoke through wind. He spoke through fire. He spoke through uh, earthquake. He spoke through plague. He spoke through drought. There are many ways in which he spoke and he would interpret these things and saying why these events had happened in certain ways through the, through the prophets. Uh, but God was speaking. God was showing his holiness. God was showing uh, the seriousness with which he took his law. He spoke then to Moses and gave the Ten Commandments and gave all the instructions there to the people of Israel. And they began to have a, a written text to which they could refer and when we come to the time of Joshua, God tells Joshua to pay attention to that written text, to let it stay before him a day and night, to ponder it, uh, not to let it depart from his eyes. And he had already uh, told Moses that they were to train their children, that they were to tell them when they say, what are these, what are these all, all these ordinances that we do? What are these instructions we have? Well, you're to tell them we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and God brought us out with a mighty hand. And so you're to keep these things before them day and night. So as God spoke and as the revelation became more and more mature, they were to teach it more and more to people. And then as we enter the era of the prophets, the prophets reflect upon the law. The prophets reflect upon those things that the children of Israel have done and they interpret the events through which God is speaking in light of the written revelation. But none of the prophets could contain all of it. The prophets saw these things partially. They did not see them in their fullness. The prophets often complain about the mysterious nature of the revelation that is given or about the great burden that is placed upon them to, to give this revelation and how it separates them from the people. And we see Jeremiah and how Je Jeremiah didn't want to do this because he was too young and God made him do it. He said, I'm going to make your, your forehead like flint. And Jeremiah, sure enough, he experiences all the things he thought he would experience. He was resisted by the people. He was let down into a well. Eventually, he is taken away at the end of his life into Egypt trying to escape the, 
the uh, attack that is going on in their land. Uh, the prophets uh, had great difficulties. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. Jonah was a very reluctant prophet. And even after there's a great revival there in Nineveh as a result of the preaching of Jonah, when he simply said what God told him to say, he is upset about it. He said, I knew you would do this. I'm upset about this. We see Amalekai or Habakkuk who, who is very upset about all the evil he sees around him. And then God tells him, well, I'm, I'm going to take care of this because I'm going to bring the Babylonians in and they're going to show that I am wrathful toward this people that have not obeyed my covenant. And then Habakkuk is upset with that and says, Lord, you are of too pure eyes to behold evil. How can you punish the, those who are more righteous with people who are less righteous? How can, how can you do this? The prophets were perplexed about these things, but they were always setting forth in truth their own responses, their own perplexed and mysterious re responses to these things, but they recorded them according to the operation of the Spirit in a way that would flesh out for us all the mysteries of how a holy God operates in a fallen world to teach us His intent both to judge and to save. And this message comes through the prophets, but it took more than one prophet. Elijah was not uh, clear without Elisha. Isaiah was not clear without Jeremiah. Uh, Habakkuk was not clear without Malachi. And so we end up the entire scheme of the prophets with the promise that there will be a forerunner and then there will be one who comes. Uh, the Lord himself will come to his temple. So he spoke through the prophets. He spoke in many times and he spoke in various ways. But all of these things were to a degree incomplete so that even when the prophets received their message and recorded their message, they were perplexed still about this. Even the text that we read, the, the scripture reading that we read, very well selected. Verse 10 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So, we see also in 2 Peter how he refers to this reality of the clarification of those things that the prophets had said. When he says in verse 16 of chapter 1, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have, now bear with me on this, this translation, we have made more sure 
the prophetic word. That is, the prophetic word that has been given to us about which Peter said in 1 Peter, they wondered what was the time and what was the person, what kind of thing was going to happen with this Messiah. And now Peter is saying we have more sure this prophetic word. In other words, the prophetic word about which the prophets themselves even wondered has now been made sure. It has been made crystal clear. This prophetic word has come to a concrete reality in the person of Christ. We were with him in the holy mountain and we heard the voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And it is on that basis that he says he is the fulfillment of all of this. The prophetic word is now sure and you do well to pay attention to it as until the day dawns, the morning star rises, knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So as the writer of Hebrews does, so Peter is teaching us that the surety that comes, the clarity that comes under <clears throat> the, in, uh, the incarnation of Christ in the sphere of Christ accomplishing redemption, all of those former prophecies are now made clear. They have come to fruition in the concrete reality of Jesus Christ. And Peter is in the process of arguing that his own writings... His contact with Christ and now his writing in giving clarity to the prophetic writings is participating in that prophetic reality. He's telling them to pay attention to this clarity that is given the prophetic writing. Pay attention to it as a light that shines in a dark place for how long? Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. That is, until Christ comes again, until you are in complete conformity with His holiness, having the affections of your heart completely molded according to His image. And so he is arguing through there that the apostolic writing is the fulfillment of the Old Testament writing, and it's because they were in the presence of Christ and the Holy Spirit that Christ's promise has operated in them to give this true word. And so the writer of Hebrews is telling us long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But now in these last days, in these last days he has spoken to us by a son. Now the <clears throat> reason I say a son is because uh, the word his is supplied, and that certainly is right. It is his son. It is the son of God. But what the writer is doing is he is talking about the qualitative difference between speaking through multiple prophets and speaking through one who is a son. That is, one who is generated by him, one who is of his very nature. The prophets were of his nature only in the fact that they were created in the image of God. The Son is of his nature in that he is of the very eternal nature of God. He is the complete revelation. He is the full revelation. He has spoken to us through created beings at many times and in various ways. But now in these last days, in these last days, this is when the completion of redemption comes, he has spoken to us by a Son. 
The son knows the father. The son knows what the father has said. The son says everything the father tells him to say. The son does his father's will completely. The son reveals the father's character completely. The son is the one who picks up into his own person all the prophetic ministry that has been given, and he fulfills it. And so he is speaking now through a son. This son is the one who opens up to us the reality of God. And Philip said, show us the Father and it will suffice us. And Jesus said, have I been so long a time with you, Philip, and yet you do not know me? He that has seen me has seen the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. In these last days he has spoken to us by a son. Christ has completed these things. It's instructive, I think, also that the Apostle John says that we know that it is the last hour because many antichrists have come. You could not have antichrists until you have the Christ. You could not have those who are mimicking Christ, trying to put themselves in the place of Christ, and even times opposing the completed work of Christ until Christ comes and does that. And so John spends most of his letter talking about the various ways in which Antichrist tries to deceive us through making us not love our brother, through substituting other messages, through denying the reality of Christ's flesh, denying the reality of, this, of his shed blood. There are many Antichrists who've come, and therefore we know it is the last time. And so this redemptive work is done. We're now in the last days. We have a completed redemption. We have a completed revelation. And we're waiting until uh, the completion of God's decree of election takes place. He is being patient, and he will not come until all of them has come in. God is not slack concerning his promise. That is, the promise of redemption is some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. Any who? Any of those that he has talked about in the first chapter as those who are making their calling and election sure, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So there's a complete revelation, there's a complete redemption, and when there is a completed salvation, then Christ will come. We are now in these last days. Satan's doom is completed, sin has been propitiated, death is destroyed, God has spoken the promise of the Holy Spirit, has revealed all the things of Christ to the apostles, and so the revelation is completed. He has spoken. It's a word that says it is completed. There's an action with a lasting result. So we see we have a perfect revelation. A perfect revelation in words, a perfect revelation in the person, there's no partial revelation, but one who is of the same nature as the Father. We do not have messages through weak and perplexed men who are confused about what they're seeing, what they're doing. Uh, people who uh, sometimes did not even like the message that was revealed to them, but we have one who is full of confidence and assurance, one who knows who he is, one who knows his relationship with the Father, one who announces that the prophets are fulfilled in your ears this day, as he announced there in Nazareth, <clears throat> one who told 
uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus that all of these things are fulfilled. Everything, all the prophets are fulfilled in me. He opened the eyes of the disciples to see that. Everything. He was very confident. He was full of absolute assurance that he was the fulfillment of all of those words and that his resurrection sealed this uh, in the purposes of God. We have a perfect revelation. We also have the perfect person. In these last days he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Well, he is the perfect person because he is the only person who could accomplish the redemption that was needed. The only person that could accomplish that which God had decreed in the covenant of redemption. He is the perfect person because of his deity. His deity is affirmed, first of all, in the word, a son. One of the very nature of God. We see this affirmed in verse 5 also. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. He is talking there about the superiority of Christ to angels. Now, in, in what, why, does the, why does the writer use that particular verse? Why does he take Psalm 2 as a manifestation of sort of, of proof of his assertion that he has spoken to us by a son and that he has, in, that he has a name that is superior to the angels? Well, if you look at Psalm 2 and see the context of the verse that he is quoting. In verse 6 of Psalm 2, we have God saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then he begins to explain the, the progress of this. Even as the writer of Hebrews explains the progress of Christ's work. He does in verses 5 through 10, he does, he goes back over what he's done in verse 1 through 4, explaining scripturally how this has worked itself out. And so in verse 7, he says, I will tell of the decree, Psalm 2, 7. I will tell of the decree. So when is this happening? When is this discussion going on? It is at a time when the decree is being given. There was never a time when the decree had not been given. This decree, in a sense, is intrinsic to God. It is not something that God decided later on in his eternal existence to do. It is something that is within the very nature of the triune God to manifest himself in this particular way, to show to rational beings, intelligent beings, whom he would create all the aspects of his nature. And so he says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is at the time of the decree. 
This is a conversation going on in eternity. So this is a manifestation of the sonship of the second person of the Trinity in eternity at the time that, as we would envision it humanly, at the time that the decree is being set forth in all of its details. And so he goes on, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. These are things that are set forth in the decree. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss who? Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the writer of Hebrews, in talking about why it is important for us to understand how he has spoken finally to us in a son, goes back to Psalm 2 to talk about the decree that is made with the son in eternity. And then as things work their, themselves out in history with all of the rebellion, with all of those who think they're so strong and so smart and, and so above the reality of God's revelation and redemption and the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of substitutionary atonement and the virgin birth and all of the things by which God has shown his wisdom in the world to redeem a people, all of those who rebel against that and think that they are above all of it and they're beyond all of it and all of that is superstition, all of these one day will come and this one who is the son will be their judge. And the psalmist says, kiss the son, lest he be angry. And so the writer of Hebrews refers us to that passage of Scripture, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is something that was established in eternity. And then he refers to it also out of the, the covenant with David. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me. A son. The son is the one that I will bring in. The son is the one who will fulfill the promise I've made to you of one who will sit forever on your throne. The throne of David will be established. Why? Because it's an eternal person. It's the son. And even when he brings the firstborn into the world. Now we progress historically. When he brings the firstborn into the world, what, what happens then? Let all God's angels worship him. There he is, the baby in the manger, the one born of Mary, but he is the Son of God. The Holy Spirit shall come upon you, and the power of the Most High shall overshadow you. The Holy Spirit conceived the humanity of Jesus within the womb of the Virgin Mary. The power of the Most High is a, a way of saying that this one who is the eternal expression of the character and the power and the eternity of God by being eternally generated the Son, the power of the Most High will overshadow you at the moment of the conception by the Holy Spirit that one that was conceived was also at that very moment the Son of God the eternal Son of God mysteriously embracing into himself human nature in order that he might perform the redemption that needed to be performed and so when he is when he is born 
The word is, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever. You see, he continues to demonstrate the reason he's spoken to us by a son is because the son is God. The son is there in the covenant. The son is there in the birth. And now the son is there on the throne. Your throne, O God, is forever. Now, why is he on the throne in the way he is on the throne? Why is he on the throne in order to vindicate some and to judge others? Why is he on the throne in this particular way? Now, he has the right to be on the throne simply because he is sovereign God, but there is a particular way in which he's on the throne as the Messiah. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness. When did he do that? Well, he does it in eternity, but... In the incarnation, he loved righteousness all of his life. He loved righteousness without any fail. He died the just for the unjust. There was no sin found in his mouth. There was no guile in him. He loved righteousness. He loved the Lord with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. All of his days, never with any reflex of, of, of resisting the will of God, never with any... Uh, grudging kind of obedience, but always with a love for the glory of his Father. He loved righteousness. That's a goal toward which we're moving. We still sometimes do not love righteousness. It seems oppressive. It seems like it's not exactly what we want to do because it doesn't fit my idea of what will make me have fun in life. Righteousness. Oh, but righteousness is the greatest of things. Righteousness is a reflection of the eternal joy of God himself. And Jesus loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, who is he talking about now? Well, he's talking about the Father now. He's already had the Father call him, Your throne, O God, is forever. And now we have a reference to the Father as God. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. There he is, seated on the throne, ready to judge as a righteous judge. You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hand. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will wear them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. He has created all things. He is now above all things, and he has completed his redemption. And so God says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So we go from eternity past in the decree to the accomplishment of his work through his love of righteousness, showing that he is eternal above all the things that he has made. 
And now those who oppose his way of redemption will find that he is the one who is the pure one. He is the holy one. He is the righteous one. He is the omnipotent one. He is the one who will rule eternity. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He is the perfect person because of his deity. Our text tells us that he <clears throat> created all things through whom also he created the world. The text tells us that he sustains all things by the word of his power. He keeps it into existence. The text tells us that he is the express image of the invisible God. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He has done those things that only God can do in his creation. This is one of the most beautiful, one of the most expansive statements about the deity of Christ set within the context of the redemptive purpose of God that can be imagined. It is a very difficult thing to conceive of how people actually can read the Bible and come away denying the deity of Christ. How people can actually read the Bible and come away thinking that he has not offered a substitutionary atonement for the forgiveness of sins. It's a very amazing thing that people can read the Bible with they, they strain the nature of human language. They strain metaphors and they strain images to show in every way we can how God has acted in the person of his beloved son for the redemption of sinners. No way this should be hid from us. The only thing that hides it from us is because the affections of our heart are cold. The affections of our heart love the world. The affections of our heart love our own pleasure. The affections of our heart love our own prestige and our position. And we love everything except righteousness. And it's only when there is an operation of the Spirit of God upon the truth of God to change our hearts, to bring us into conformity with this particular thing, the oil of gladness that has been given to Christ. When we see gladness and joy in the redemptive work of Christ and in knowing Him and in worshiping Him. He is the perfect person because He is God. But He is the perfect person also because He is, he is human. He is man. We see sort of an, an essential di dignity in his deity, but the complexity of this person, we see a merited dignity in his humanity. We see something that he earns in his humanity, something he has earned for us. Notice the language here. <clears throat> in verse 2, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now, he should be the heir of all things because it was through him that he, the world was created. Intrinsically, he should be the heir of all things because he is God. He is the one who currently sustains it by the word of his power. But he's going to be the heir of all things in a different way in that he will be the judge between the righteous and the unrighteous. He will be the heir of all things in that all of those who come and join with the triune God in heaven will come by way of 
his work, by way of his merit, he has been appointed the heir of all things. We see also this same idea. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, verse 4, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Having become. Well, he already was superior to the angels. He created the angels. None of them is like him. He is eternal. They are temporal. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. That is, he is the one that intrinsically has authority over all of creation. He has the power over it. But our text tells us that he has become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Well, how did he become that? He became that in his humanity, in his messiahship. He became that through his life of obedience. He became that because he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. He became that because he was obedient to the will of God even unto death, yea, the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It was as Jesus Christ that he became as much superior to the angels. He is the Messiah Redeemer. He is the man who saves us. There is one mediator between God and man. Who? The man Christ Jesus. He is the perfect person to bring about redemption because he is God and because he is man. This is one of the themes that we see carried out through Hebrews, his own obedience, the way in which he he, he struggled in his human soul with the specter of what was before him and knowing the pain and the separation that was coming all the time, living in perfect obedience and in joyful obedience. As Hebrews 12 tells us, "...who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is set down at the right hand of the majesty on high." And in chapter 5, Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence, his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. What a strange sentence. How could anyone say something like that except under the inspiration of the Spirit of God? How can anyone juxtapose those ideas that he is the son, he is the one of the same nature as the father, and yet, though he is of the same nature as the father, knowing perfectly the will of the father, consenting in eternity to the will of the father, knowing all about him, although he was a son, he learned obedience. He learned what obedience was. He learned every step of the way, what his obedience would cost him. He learned every step of the way, what righteousness would require of him as he moved toward the cross, which he did purposefully, and he did it uh, with uh, absolute determination and with an understanding that he would die for the sins of his people, but he would be resurrected. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And look at this phrase, being made perfect. 
Wasn't he already perfect? Wasn't the son already perfect? Wasn't the son sinless? Wasn't the son perfectly righteous? Wasn't the son holy? Yes, he was. But in his person, the singularity of his person in the incarnation, he learned obedience to the things that he suffered and reached the point of perfection. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He is the perfect person because he is God, because he is man, and because he is one person. Our text emphasizes that all of these things are done by this particular one. All of these things are done by the one who is the Son. He is the radiance. He sat down at the right hand. He, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. It could not be done without the singularity of his person. Now the third thing I want to mention <coughs> briefly is his perfect work. Notice that our text says he made purification for sins. The book of Hebrews talks much about that. It continues to talk about how he made purification for sins, how he died, uh, died for sins, how he himself was the a completion of all the sacrificial system that uh, there's now no more need for the shedding of blood because Christ has shed his blood once for all. He has made purification for sins. And we see this in chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, where the writer tells us that when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He made purification for sins. His work is perfect also because he sat down. He was seated. The Father gave him that point of sitting down and ruling over the nations because his work was perfect it was complete the covenant relationship was done the blood of the eternal covenant had been shed he was raised from the dead because of the completion of that death no longer has any hold over him Hebrews 2 tells us that even in his humanity it became like his brethren in everything uh, he destroyed him that has the power of death that is the devil and how did he do it he did it by his own death for sin. So there is no more accusation that Satan has. Aha, you said, the soul that sinneth it shall die. You said, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Well, now one who is our representative has died. The wages of sin has been paid, and there is nothing else that Satan can have to accuse the brethren. And he has sat down. He sat down at the right hand. And he has become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In his humanity, this was one of the things that probably astounded the angels at the first revelation of it, that one who is inferior in nature by creation to them would be raised to an exalted position above them. And this would happen in the person of the Son of God, that the Son of God would join himself with their nature in order to redeem them was a great Mystery to the angels. They longed to look into this. And so he 
became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jehovah is salvation is the meaning of the name. In Acts 4, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That is, this Jesus whom, Je whom God raised from the dead. So we see in this text an introduction to the complete argument that the writer gives. We see the offices of prophet, priest, and king. Christ is the anointed one. Jesus fills up the meaning of each of these offices, operative, in Israel. The text introduces us to the argument of Hebrews as to how Jesus attained his superiority in each office, how he has brought each to its ultimate fulfillment by uniting them in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. The focus of the book, of course, is on the priestly work. It spends much more time on the priestly work than any of these, but we see punctuating throughout it the reality of his being the final revelation of God in his prophetic work, we see the fact that all things are under his feet, that he's been seated at the right hand of the Father, that he's been granted kingship as a Messiah. He reigns with redemptive and gracious power. Our text tells us, as prophet, he has spoken to us by a son. As priest, after making purification for sins. As king, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. May God grant us the grace to believe him, to trust him, to love him, and to find all of our salvation in him. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we do thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would seal it to our hearts, that the Lord Jesus would be more precious to us every day, that we would see his value, that we would understand why our text says that he has been given a name. The name he has inherited is more excellent than even the highest of the angels. Grant us this grace for Christ's sake, we pray. Amen.